Again, good morning. Let's turn to Luke chapter 16, please. Luke chapter 16. Starting in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries the one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful passage where Christ is responding to scoffing and rejection. And, and through it, we are being taught some very important things and, and some very actually reassuring things. So, Heavenly Father, as we open up this passage, I would pray, Lord, that first of all, you would incline our heart to your word. Incline our heart to you. Help us, Lord, to be in a position where we would hear your word and respond to it. And and then, Lord, I would pray that by your spirit, you would teach wonderful things out of your word to each heart that is here. Lord, um, I would pray that you would attend to my deficiencies and my inadequacies. And nevertheless, in spite of all of that, would you... Teach your word so that people walk out of here marveling at your word and marveling at you. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this we have as a response, as I said, of Jesus to the Pharisees to scoffing. And particularly today... I was going to do the whole thing. Uh, uh, Jamie was saying, what would you like as an ending hymn? And I said, well, just pick something about marriage, divorce, and remarriage from your hymn book. You know, one of those old-time ones. And uh, I, I noticed for a long time I never got a response back. She so just, uh, just kind of, there was nothing, came back. Well, marriage, divorce, and remarriage is an important thing, and we're going to talk about that next time. Uh, because... I started in on this, and it actually flows. There's a logical progression here, but I just got, my heart was captured by verse 17, and I couldn't go further. There's just, there's so much that we need to be reminded of, and so here we have this powerful statement about the scriptures, and we're going to be studying it this morning, and it came out of this response to the Pharisees who were listening to what Jesus was teaching the disciples and were scoffing. And that is what they were doing, and that's what you're going to be facing as believers. 
You're going to have people like this rather than seriously interacting with the substance of what Jesus was teaching. They sneered, scoffed, mocked. Rather than engaging with the facts, or in this case with scripture, those who know truth and the facts are not on their side resort to bullying, ridicule, and scoffing as their primary tools. They did it then, they do it now. They abandon logic because logic and truth are not on their side, so they sneer and mock. And it is very effective because it quickly gathers the unreasoning crowd, the brash, loud, uh, threatening, bullying crowd like this. And when you look at it, you'd, you'd almost say, as you're looking at believers, why would anyone run the risk of having guys like this hounding you and going after you? What would motivate you to follow Christ even though you're getting ridiculed and mocked at high levels? And the answer is verse 17. Here it is. The word of God is absolutely dependable. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. Everything it says is going to happen is going to happen. In eternity, they, the mockers, will be found to be wrong and be judged for it. So don't follow them or live your life to placate them. The sure thing is the word of God, not them. And that is the force and the logic, I believe, of what Jesus is saying. And we could just say, well, that's what the verse means and move on. But, but... But there's this massive verse, there's this massive statement, and it's a powerful treasury about the nature of the Word of God. And so I'm going to try this morning and plumb some of the depth of it this morning. And it is, as I say, a massive statement that is put very, very succinctly. Before we begin to plumb its depth, we need to know what the actual terms mean. Because the world is full of words. And Jesus picked these precise ones for, for good reason. So let's find out what the words are, what they mean in their context, and then we'll be able to marvel at what's going on. So let's first understand the terms so we can ponder with precision. First, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away. He's saying two things. Number one, that which people would say is an incalculable thing that is never going to happen. People, you know, think, well, I mean, the whole universe is not going to all of a sudden burn up. It will. Actually, it will. There's going to come a day where God speaks the entire universe, including this earth, into non-existence. Second Peter talks about it where he said he's going to speak the word and the entire universe is going to melt with fervent heat. It, it, the term used in the, in the Greek there is a term that would be the, the hottest thing that they know of. It's on par with a, a nuclear explosion. There's incredible heat and the whole thing is going to come into non-existence. God's going to speak the world out of creation as he spoke the world into creation. That day is coming. He says it's easier for that to happen than for one thing. And that is, let's again look at the terms. 
One stroke of the letter of the law to fail. One stroke. Literally, just so that you understand what's going on here, it's easier that a little horn of a letter of the law to fail to be fulfilled. A little horn. The little horn, if you are a student of Hebrew, the little horn, the karayan, was a stroke that was used in forming different letters in the Hebrew alphabet. For example, for a moment, turn to, of course, our syllabus for the Hebrew um, alphabet, Psalm 119, please. Psalm 119. What's a first example here? Um, Kaf. So turn to one, uh, Psalm 119, 81. In most of your Bibles, in the header, you'll have it Kaf. And what that is, is this was a tutorial on how to teach your kids Hebrew. Most of what goes on in the next few verses is an alliteration based on the letter Kaf. Okay? Uh, so, look at how that is formed. It sort of looks like a backward C, correct? There's a backward C on there. Um, if you now, though, add a little horn, a karayan to it, uh, and just point a little bit of a thing here, you have a new letter. Turn, if you would, to what we just uh, read in uh, verse 9. And look at Beth. Now compare Beth in verse 9 with Kaf in verse 81. You go, okay, it's the same letter. No, it's not the same letter. There's a, looks like a C, but in Beth, there's a little dibble at the bottom. A little pointy, that's the Karayan. And that differentiates a Beth from a Kaf which forms a whole new word. Or let's look at another example. Um, resh. Okay, so Samek, Ayan, Pe, Kolf, Resh, 153. Look at 153 and, and look for a moment at the, at the letter Resh. Sort of looks like an upside down L. Or for those of you who are studying Greek, it almost looks like a capital uh, gamma, right? Okay, but if you add a little bit of a, uh, a, a a little point on it, turn if you would to verse. Oh, where are we at? Uh, Deleth. Where is Deleth? Beth Gimel Deleth. There we go. Twenty-five. Look at the letter Deleth, and look at. The letter Resh, and you go, well, they're the same letter. Nope. There's a little horn on one side there, a little pointy thing. That is the Karayan. Uh, the Karayan is, the base of the word is a horn. And so it was a little horn that was added, a little pointy thing that was added to differentiate between letters. Small pen stroke, different letter. You go, so what in the world is going on here? Well, 
let's turn it to something that you'd have more familiarity with. Uh, and this is one that I learned from a seminary teacher, Dr. Charles Ryrie. I could do a handwritten note and I could say, I am inviting you to my place for fun. Fun. And I do that with a capital F, fun. And I could say, here, I'm going to do this, this invitation. I'll invite you for some fun. And go, I don't know, maybe that's not a very good invitation. So I'd add one carayon and put a little stroke in there. And I would make now the letter P from an F. Just a one little and now we have a P. I'd say, I'll invite you for a pun, which I would find devastatingly fun. I like puns. Some of you don't like puns. Some of you live for it because you know, I think Pastor Howard is going to slip a pun somewhere into this sermon. And, and he probably will. But we could say pun. And, but somebody say, but that's not really a, a good thing to invite somebody for. So I would add one more carayan to the word P, pun. And I would just do a little dibble down. I will invite you to a run. One little pen stroke. Oh, completely different word. Hey, why don't you come to my place for a run? Let me tell you something right off the bat. If you ever get an invitation from Pastor Howard and he says, I'm inviting you for a run, don't believe it. It's either a typo or it is somebody pranking you. Pastor Howard might run a boat, he might run a quad, but chances are. Anyway, so, I, but just one little dibble, and all of a sudden it's a different invitation. I go, well, I don't know if I want to do that. I would, I would maybe add one more little carayan. Do a little there at the bottom. I will invite you for a bun. Just kind of put a little thing on there. But do you see how a little carayan changes... I, I, did, I added a few Koreans there, and I have four different words, four very different um, invitations. Meaning, the whole point of that is, one little dash like that changes the letter, changes the word. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the word of God is accurately, accurate and utterly dependable down to even the very smallest pen stroke. It isn't a situation where it is sort of accurate, ballpark. It isn't something where you can say, well, big picture, it's okay, let's not get too specific. The Word of God sustains the most careful and the most exacting scholarship right down to even the spelling. Spelling makes different words. Spelling makes different meanings. The word of God is accurate down to the last pen stroke, is what he's saying. It is utterly dependable. Actually, he made the same point, uh, Jesus made the same point in Luke chapter 16, a few months earlier on the Sermon on the Mount. Let's turn there for a moment to Luke chapter, or pardon me, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. He says in verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus Christ is intent that everything written in the word of God comes off exactly as it said, exactly as it's spelled out. Exactly. Watch. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, again, there is going to come a day where that happens. Heaven and earth will pass away. But until that day, if you look around and you go, I still see a world, here's what you know. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And here, he, he mixes up the languages a little bit. The first one he says is, not the, and your translations have the smallest letter. On the Greek, it's, it's, it is the smallest Greek letter. It's the iota. The iota, it says not one iota will pass. And the iota is like an, a stylized I with no dot. It's just a, like that. Kind of just a, you, you can do that awful quick, just a iota. It's the smallest letter. Not one of those, or watch, he says here, not the smallest letter or stroke. And here he has again the karayam, that little horn. Not one of the smallest pen strokes of the Greek or the Hebrew will pass away. Not of, none of it shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. All is accomplished. So, these two verses, let me say right off, have been used to defend the idea of the preservation of the biblical text. I do believe the Bible and the biblical text has been preserved. Um, but I do not believe that is what Jesus is saying in this particular verse. Good idea, excellent thought, but that's not what this verse is saying. I do not believe that what Jesus is saying here is that there is that kind of preservation of the biblical text. The wording on this declaration is so extreme and absolute that if he was arguing this from the point of view of text preservation, it would mean that the actual skin that Moses wrote on was supernaturally preserved and everyone still has it to look at and to inspect. Okay? It would mean, for example, the stones that the hand of God wrote the Ten Commandments on is still on display for all to inspect. It would mean that the scroll that Jeremiah wrote is still in Jerusalem and you can unroll it. They sadly are not. And yet, God was very sovereign, and I would say very wise in that. So, this is not a promise of the physical preservation of the original manuscripts, of the original skins with the pen strokes of David, for example. And I believe that there's some wisdom in that. Number one, if you had a copy like that, here I got, I have Psalm 119. And I might say, I have Psalm 119, and you don't. 
mine. What would happen if there was the original one that David actually, his hands were, and he made the pen strokes? What would happen with that? Well, there'd be wars to fight over who has possession of it. And whoever has possession of it, it would be very valuable, and they would hide it someplace. And nobody would get Psalm 119, because it was so valuable, and everybody's fighting for it, and it's mine, mine, mine. There would be no copies allowed because we've got the original. We're not going to have copies, just the original. No one would have an opportunity to read it. And here's the other thing that happens, and we see this all the way through church history. If there was a scroll with Psalm 119 with the original hand thing of David on it, people would worship it. People would worship it. They would fall down and worship it. They'd kiss it. They'd, they'd be saying there's all sorts of blessings coming over, just touching it, all that kind of stuff. Because men are superstitious that way. God did something a lot smarter. He caused multiple, multiple copies to be made. Distributed all over the place so that everybody has Psalm 119. I'll bet in every household you've got two or three copies of Psalm 119 that is available to you. And, and so it goes all across the word, multiple, and everybody has a chance to read it, and nobody's falling down and worshiping a, a piece of calfskin. So, going back then, has the text of Scripture been preserved? Can there be a case for the idea that the Scripture has been preserved by God? And it's important because some have argued that since inerrancy applies to the original manuscripts, that the doctrine of inerrancy is functionally irrelevant. We don't have the original manuscripts, it's a tempest in a teapot. And it's very wrong, very wrong. I'll show you one, just even from the text that we're in. Would have been in if we had been in Luke 16. Let's go back to Luke 16 for a minute. Luke 16. We're going to get to this right away. Parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Verse 24, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he's being comforted and here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, that is Lazarus. He hasn't got it. He still thinks that he's a rich man. Therefore, he gets to order Lazarus about for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, watch, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Show them something supernatural. Uh -uh. But he said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And we've got a lot to say about that passage. We're going to spend some time on it. But I want you to just look at verse 29. 
They have Moses and the prophets. They presently have Moses and the prophets. What is he referring to here? Moses, the Pentateuch, the prophets, the rest of the New Testament. He says they've got the completed New Testament. What did the rich man's brothers have? What did they possess? Did they have the original calfskin with the pen strokes of Samuel? No. What they had would have been a copy of a copy of a copy of ten other generations of copies that was then translated into Aramaic and then a copy of a copy of a copy and then translated into another language, Greek. And he had a copy of a copy of a copy of that. You go, okay, well, there's so much dilution. No. There is so much preservation. Because in the midst of all of that, Christ says, do you know what they have? They have, in its totality, in its unadulterated form, Moses and the prophet. It's not going, aversion, it's close. They have the very thing. They have what Moses wrote. They have exactly what the prophet. But it survived all those copies. It survived all of that translation process. Yes. According to Christ, yes. They did. There's an oft-repeated assertion by Jesus. And he's, he's making this point frequently. Jesus quotes scriptures and says, it is written. It stands forever written. Jesus says frequently, Isaiah says, or Isaiah wrote. And he's often quoting the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation. And here's what we understand. The word of God, even after a good, well-crafted translation, is still the word of God. Those are the verses to establish the concept and the reality of the preservation of the word of God. But I'm going to say that this passage in Matthew, this passage in Luke 16, is an oft-repeated assertion. We see it several times coming through the ministry of Christ. And he's making a very different point. The word of God is going to be confirmed exactly as it's spelled out. The word of God is going to be confirmed exactly as it's spelled out. Can, can I share something with you guys? Some of you believe some really wacky things. At least what the world would consider wacky. You believe that there was no, nothing at all. And then God just spoke everything to, into existence. And there were trees. And there were animals, and they were swimming in the sea, and, and, and he just spoke it into existence out of nothing. Some of you guys believe that. Some of you guys believe that God spoke, and all of a sudden there was a water canopy surrounding the earth. It all fell down. There was a tremendous water uh, fountain in the bottom, and it came up, and it flooded the entire earth so that even the highest of the mountains worldwide were absolutely covered by water and in the process of that a whole bunch of new continents 
were developed. Some of you believe that. Some of you believe that there was a, a chap by the name of Jesus Christ, and he was fully man. He had a human lineage, but he was fully God. Do you think everybody who listens to CNN believes that? Some of you have read a book called the book of Revelation, and it talks about 100-pound hailstones. You go, I've been to southern Alberta. I've seen some ones the size of of a baseball. 100-pound hailstones? And they go, okay, uh, nobody's going to believe that. Okay, so... Let's say it's a symbol. Let's, let's um, say it's allegorical of something. So a lot of people do that in order to accommodate some of these things like every mountain, the book of Revelation says, every mountain gets leveled. Every mountain gets leveled. Yeah. Do you really believe that? If you trust Jesus Christ knows what he's saying and tells the truth. You understand this. Even those passages you go, I have no idea how that could ever be. You look at it and say, here's what I know. If he wrote it, and the only way you could interpret it honorably is by saying, there's going to be 100 pound hailstones. If he wrote it, if that's the way that you would take it in natural language, not one of those statements is going to pass away until everything is fulfilled precisely as it's spelled out. Those of you who've been along for the ride as we've gone through the book of Isaiah, as we went through the Isaiah chapter 40s in through that region, Jesus, can, or the prophet Isaiah, pardon me, continually says something about prophecy and about the word of God. He quotes God and he says, God is saying, the only one who has the proper chronology, accurate history, is God. Boy, our world needs to hear that. Because how many in our world... Even believers will say, I know the word of God, I believe the word of God, and evolution. Because if you're in any kind of an academic environment, and you say, but, but I also hold to young earth creationism, you will be laughed off of the staff. You're not permitted to hold that perspective. You can hold a perspective like Elon Musk, that this world is, is not really a world, it's just some sort of a virtual reality game that's being played and we're the pawns of some you know, bigger game force that's going on. You can hold those ideas and go, oh, that's really profound, good for Elon Musk. I believe that there's a God who created the whole world into existence in six days. But you're not allowed to teach that. Um, I'm very... Uh, seriously considering that we're, we're thinking about it here that I'm going to do a series perhaps even at family camp on the conflict between science and evolution and, and talk about the first couple chapters of, of uh, Genesis. I, I, I'm just itching to get into that topic. But anyway, 
You as believers hold to a whole bunch of things that the world thinks is absolutely nut bar. Why do you believe them? Because some of you understand exactly what he says here. Not one of the smallest pen strokes. Not one of the smallest dashes, an iota, will pass away until everything gets fulfilled precisely as it's spelled out. And you have that confidence because you have that kind of confidence in God. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5 for a bit. Matthew 5. This is the extended expression. This is the long play of what we're seeing in, in Luke chapter 16. What do we learn from verse 18? Number one, the entire universe, including the earth, is going to go out of existence. And we find that in 2 Peter 3, verse 12. I have that number in my margin. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. It's going to melt with fervent heat. It's going to happen. Number two, not the smallest particle of what's described and what is promised to come will fail to be fulfilled, fail to be accomplished. It will happen exactly as it's spelled out down to the accuracy of the actual letter particles, word tenses even. So therefore, it's appropriate to study grammar. One other thing that in the Isaiah chapter 40s, it says over and over again is he says, here's how you, I'm going to differentiate myself from the other false gods that are around. I'm going to do something that nobody else can do. I am going to predict what is going to come, and I'm not going to do it like Nostradamus or any of those guys where you just do something really vague that could happen, you know, depending on how you give it a push. I'm going to predict the future with such accuracy, with such precision, with such specificity, that it will be either defined as either, yes, it happened, or no, it didn't. For example, a hundred and some years before, Medo-Persia was anybody, was any kind of a... um, military force, he says, oh, by the way, the ones who are going to defeat Babylon are the Medo-Persians. Oh, and I'll tell you, the the name of the guy who's going to lead them, 150 years before he was born and before his parents decided, he says, by the way, his name is going to be Cyrus. Who in the world would go on record saying something that specific? God He's saying, I'm going to give you a whole bunch of very, very specific details that are either, you can say, it happened or it didn't happen. And I'm, I'm, so they're verifiable. And I'm going to do it to differentiate the Word of God from anything else. That's why it's important to study prophecy, as a matter of fact. That's why it's important to study the details of prophecy and not take some sort of a discounted version of, well, that the prophecy-ish could mean. Take it exactly as it's written. That's what he's saying here. Nothing that is written in the Word of God is going to fail to happen precisely as it's spelled out. Precisely as it's spelled out. 
Not one of the smallest, smartest particle of any of the letters. He says here, uh, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. By that, he's making reference to what was in existence at that time, the entire Old Testament. All of what he says applies to the entire Old Testament. Okay? Including Genesis, the first three chapters of Genesis. So, study grammar, study Old Testament as being accurate. accurate. And then it is authoritative because it has no errors to undermine its accuracy and its confidence. Let me look, show you a little bit how Jesus um, defended the Word of God. Turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22. Here he's in a conflict with a group of people who are called the Sadducees. The Sadducees believed in the Pentateuch and nothing else. They said, I, we, we'll take that the, that the uh, first five books of the Bible written by Moses are the word of God. The rest of it, yeah. Right? And you don't realize there, are, there was a major movement at the time of Christ. We were saying, well, that's not the word of God. Like Zechariah, Isaiah, that's not the word of God. Interesting, not the word of God. And, and they were the Sadducees. And they were the ones who basically were running the priesthood at that point in time. They'll say, if it's not in the first five books of the Bible, I'm, I'm not going to take it as authoritative. Okay? So, he's in a conflict. On that day, some Sadducees who say there's no resurrection. There's no resurrection alluded to. They say, in the first five books, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children... His brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Okay? And here we have the concept of the Leverite marriage. And we call it the Leverite marriage because it's based on, that's what the word uh, is related to in the Latin. Verse 25. Now there were seven brothers with us. The first married and died and having no children left his wife to a second brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. By about the 7th, I'd be very, very mistrustful of this wonderful mushroom dish that she seems to be serving to all her husbands. Anyway, the last one died. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? And they would accompany this with a laugh, laugh, snicker, snicker, gotcha. For they had married, for all, they all had married her. Jesus answered, just comes in there like a laser. Just been. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken. Number one, you're in error. That's a great way to start with a whole group of people. The highest kind of um, theological experts, he says, you guys are, are baked. You guys are in error. You are mistaken. Not understanding the script. You don't understand scripture. You don't understand scripture. Know the power of God. So here's the first three. Bam, bam, bam. You're in error. You don't understand scripture. You don't understand the power of God. Nice start. Uh, yeah, he just gets right to the point. And then he says, clarifies, for the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That doesn't mean that they become an angel. It means that they do not procreate and have little kids. There's no little angel babies running around with little things eating chocolates. Verse 31. But regarding the resurrection of the dead. Now he's going to give them a little bit of theology, which is beautiful. Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And he quotes, wonderfully, from Exodus. 
So he's going to prove out of even the passage that they say is authoritative. And he's saying, here, I'll, I'll show you something about the resurrection. Verse 32, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. But he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You go. If I was going to defend the resurrection, I don't know if I'd use that passage. I mean, there's a whole bunch of passages you could grab. Why did he choose that one? What's what's the point here? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. How, How did that advance his point? Verb tense. If Abraham was dead and Abraham had died between 400 and 500 years earlier, if Abraham was dead, if Isaac was dead and if Jacob was dead, the correct grammar of that was I was the God of Abraham I was the God of Isaac I was the God of Jacob but he says God didn't say that God said I am the God on the basis of a verb tense he proves Abraham Isaac And Jacob are still alive. And he does so not on some sort of a marquee verse, but on the strength of a verb tense. That was the kind of confidence God had, Jesus had, in the word of God. That's why when, when we're diving into a passage, we tend to tear it apart because I know there's some people going, oh boy, he's, he's going to go you know, deep sea diving on this passage and, and, and you know, try and dive into what this word, why, what does it mean? There's a point to that because it's written with that kind of accuracy. It is written not only to sustain that kind of investigation, it was written specifically to facilitate that kind of in, in investigation so that you would get truths out of small things like how it's spelled in verb tenses. All of it matters because it's written with that kind of accuracy and with that kind of precision. Interesting. You're an error. You're ignorant of the law. You're ignorant of the power of God. Oh, and by the way, you can prove that that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive on the basis of verb tense. What else do we know about that? Well, here Jesus is saying it is historically accurate in its account of Moses and the burning bush. And so less people run around and start saying, yeah, I know, Jesus was just somehow accommodating the common belief that that all of that happened, but none of like I mean, really, like Moses was up on a mountain and he saw a bush and, and it and was on fire, but didn't get, like, seriously, do you believe that? Yes, I do. Yeah, I do. Because the Word of God says so. Oh, and Jesus said so. And now you've got a problem. Now you've got to figure out did Jesus know enough? As the pre-incarnate Son of God, did he know enough? And if he knew enough, was he honest? 
If you understand that Jesus is absolutely honest, he cannot utter a lie, and his understanding and his knowledge is unlimited, if he says it, it was true. Because not one squiggle by an iota or one carayan of a Hebrew text will pass away until everything is fulfilled exactly as it's spelled out. So it's true as it's written, not just a fuzzy concept. Every word down to verb tense is precisely accurate enough to establish doctrine and to correct error. Folks, the Bible cannot be inaccurate on history or science or anything it declares and still be accurate about doctrine. You, if your Bible is not completely inerrant, meaning it has no errors in it, you don't know where the errors begin and, and there's no real point in, in studying the Word of God. Here is why people would spend their entire life studying the Word of God. Because there's no errors. It's absolutely precise and it's absolutely true. You can devote your life to that because how dependable it is. Just in case you're wondering, if you haven't figured out already, what the position of this church is, and me personally, there was an important document that was hammered out and formulated Basically, what they were doing is they're gathering together what is believed about the Bible and putting it into kind of one spot. And that happened in, in 1979, and it became the International Council of Biblical Inerrancy, or what's called the, the Chicago Declaration. Just so that you know, any of the individuals who have a teaching position here are signed on, if you will, to that particular understanding of what the Word of God is. And it is a very complex, very conservative, excellent statement about the inerrancy and infallibility of the Word of God. Great big statement with then 19 different affirmations and denials. It kind of slams the door on all the false um, doctrine. Uh, the original signatures happened in 1978. There was a refreshment of signatures on that document. And uh, one of the least notable names you'll find in the list is Pastor Howard Brown. I signed my name to that, not because I want to join some group, because that's precisely what I believe about the Word of God, because that's precisely what Jesus believed about the Word of God. That's it. So if you want to look it up online, International Council for Biblical Inerrancy, you'll find it several places. I've had that challenged. People have said, how could men write a document that is with, right, without error? Let's talk about, real quick, process. Process. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is process. Verse 20, but know this.
first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Nobody just it, who Allah had their writings included into that technical designation Scripture, the graphe Scripture. No one of those, it says, is a matter of one own, one's own interpretation. Didn't just kind of, Peter just kind of, hey, I've got this, this spooky good idea. Let's, let's try that one out. That never happened. For no prophecy was ever made by the act of a human will. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. It isn't that all of a sudden Paul had this idea, I think I want to lead the church this way. That is not how the word of God originated. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. <clears throat> what do you mean by moved by the Holy Spirit? Turn, if you would, for a moment to Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27. This is the ill-fated trip of Paul going to Rome. Verse 14, but before very long there rushed down from the land a violent wind called the Euroquilo. And when the ship was caught in it, we could not face the wind. We gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Here's what they did as a ship. They go, there's no way we can tack one way or another. The wind is too hard. So what we're going to do is we're just going to turn our back to it. And we're just going to see where the wind takes us. Were the, sa were the sailors all alert and awake? Yeah, they were all alert and awake doing their thing. But there was only one way the ship was going to go. What a great picture of actually how scripture happened. The authors were alert and awake. There was an expression of their character. There was an expression of their personality. But there's only one way that ship was going to go. And it was going to go precisely where God wanted it. That's process. The Holy Spirit moved men in such a way that the ship got exactly where he wanted it to be. If you want to look at how that happened, turn, if you would, to 2 Peter, or pardon me, 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Very regularly, we need to remind ourselves of these things. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. Panta, each and every scripture, graphe, that which ended up being described as and included in that group of things called scripture. All of those are theonoustos. So each and every, that's why in most of our theological discussions we talk about the plenary inspiration of the Word of God. Every part, the whole thing and each one in particular, all Scripture. And when we're talking about Scripture, what are we saying? Well, he's saying, well, Paul is talking there about the Old Testament, but, you know, he's not really saying anything much about the New Testament. Not true. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5 for a moment. Keep your finger there. 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verse 17. The elders who real well be, are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. 
for the scripture, there it is, the graphe says. So he's quoting scripture. Do not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. What's that a quote from? Well, that, that's definitely a, a quote from the Old Testament. That is a quote from um, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. He's quoting the scripture. And here's the second piece of scripture. The laborer is worthy of his wages. Where's that? Well, that's in Luke. That's in Luke. And you need to understand something. Luke had been written for what? About five or six years at this point. He, he's quoting a piece of scripture, that a, 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 a gospel that had been written by Luke for five or six years. And understand something. It wasn't that at the Council of Chalcedony or something like that, where they said, I think we'll decide that this is the real deal, that this is scripture. Five or six years after it's written, it's already got the technical designation scripture. He can quote one little bit of it and everybody knows, oh, that's Luke. What does that mean? It means that the group of people that he's writing to already are very familiar with Luke, have memorized it and understand and will recognize a quote right off the bat. This has been, the Luke Gospel of Luke has been circulated has been understood to be scripture as it was written not hundreds of years later. And here, if we were scratching our head about it, Paul with apostolic authority says, oh, by the way, what Luke wrote, that was scripture. That was inerrant. Okay? Let's use another example. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also with the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. Here it is, the letters of Paul by the Apostle Peter already have that technical designation, scripture. So, when Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture, it's including all of that. It's including all of that. All of that scripture, he says, is theonustos. And we have the word that is usually translated inspired, which sounds like there was the word of God and God somehow kind of breathed something into it and became the word of God. And that isn't chiefly accurate. Theonustos means God breathed. God is the source of it. He breathed out the word of God. And there's some important things that come out of your understanding of theology that are derivative of that. If God is absolutely true, if he is all-knowing, he cannot say something that is inaccurate or that is wrong without it being an absolute 
denunciation of his entire character. With this statement, he is saying the word of God is tied to the character of God. And more. You say, well, okay, so the word of God is like that, but who knows what we got here? I mean, you know, Paul wrote something and and there was revelation given to Paul. It was kind of popped into his head, and but it came through Paul. And so Paul was, you know, maybe a woman hater or, you know, whatever. And he didn't want women in the pulpit. And so, you know, the revelation of God kind of came through that filter, people will say. But note what he's saying here. The graphe. What got written down on paper? The stuff that got delivered to us, God is saying, you can make all the arguments you want. You say, well, you know, John, I don't know if he had the intellectual or the, you know, the training. or what. Make all those points you, you want. They're points of ignorance. But you can make all those points. But the point is, what got put down in paper, in text, God is saying, I am the source of that which bypasses any of the other areas where we would say there'd be contamination or there'd be something that would distort with the end product. God is saying what got put down in print, I'm the source of. And then he says something interesting. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. I want to spend a sermon on that. We'll have to do that later. Verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Anything that you need to know as a believer and do something that is going to have some sort of a lasting spiritual impact, it'll be in the Word of God. If you're being encouraged to do something that isn't in the Word of God as some sort of a step toward your sanctification, it's wrong. Anything that is um, written that you need in order to follow Christ, to be obedient to the disciple, is already in the text. The sufficiency of the word of God. All right. You can tell I like this subject. And I would love to spend more time on it. Anyway, let's wrap it up. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the law, letter of the law, one karayim to fail. If you are a believer, you believe some things that the world will describe as nuts. That the world will describe as you are, have just checked your brains at the door. And you know, it's exactly like Jesus said. In order to follow Christ, you're going to have to be coming up through crowds of mockers. Crowds of people who are shouting you down. It is not like you are a fish swimming upstream against a whole school of other fish. You are swimming upstream and the other fish are piranhas biting at you. And you're going to have to teach your children that in order to trust the word of God, you're going to be holding to some things that the world finds horrendous, horrible, worthy of suppression, and that you're worthy of suppression. And what are you going to do with that? You go ahead anyway. Why? Because the word of God will not fail. 
those other people, the piranhas around you, they'll fail. Their, their end is sure. You keep your nose in the book, following the book. Put all your faith and trust and hope in it. Because my Lord said it's going to happen precisely as it's spelled out. If you go down swinging, trusting in the Word of God contrary to public wisdom, contemporary wisdom, you will never be disappointed. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray for those who are here today who are not fully convinced that they are willing to undergo the crowd of bullying and stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of a very hostile environment, a very hostile culture. I pray for them, Lord, that they would be utterly convinced of the truth of the Word of God because they are utterly convinced of the character of you. Would you by that produce in those hearts the heart of a disciple, that they would repent of sin, that they would repent of doing what's right in their own eyes or that which is acceptable in the culture, and that they would pin all of their hope and trust in the Word of God, pin all of their hope and trust in being righteous enough to having a righteousness received from Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection. And would you produce in them a heart that would follow you in spite of the obstacles, in spite of the horrendous ribbing and the mocking that they will take. Do that, I would pray, for your glory. For we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen call on our music crew.